Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you're interested in any of Walter's music, you can always reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, JamesNave.com. And if you would ever like to join me and my creative partner, Allegra Houston, for a wonderful Saturday morning writing gathering on Zoom, our door is always open. We gather at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and we just write for an hour. We usually have oh, 18 to 23 people on. It's just a fabulous open mic as well as a, a great writing session. And like I say, it only lasts an hour. Imaginativestorm.com, if you'd like to find out more about that or join us, imaginativestorm.com. And thank you, Davine Dial, for all the good work you do holding WPVM-FM together. We wouldn't be able to broadcast these great shows coming out of WPVM-FM if it weren't for all the work that you do. So thank you so much for that. If you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio for some time, you know that I always have wonderful guests, people that I, that I really enjoy. Sometimes I have people that I've never met before, and other times I have friends that I've known for a long time. Today I have Allegra Houston. I mentioned her name already. She's my creative partner in the Imaginative Storm writing session that we do every Saturday. And I've had Allegra on this show a couple of times, and I'm always glad to have my friends come back and, and have another visit. And today, I'm most especially pleased because Allegra has agreed to talk about the ideas that she has developed on writing memoir, your memoir, your stories, how do they come out? How does all that work? Well, we're gonna find out because Allegra has a lot of great information about that. And I also wanted to say that we are doing this show out in a courtyard outside, so you may hear a few dogs barking. This is the first show I've done in two years that's been off the Zoom call. So I'm really excited to be mic'd up in the sunshine, sitting here with Allegra Houston. Welcome to Twice Five Miles, Allegra. Thank you. So Allegra, I really had this terrific experience listening to you talk about how to write a memoir. And you did it with a fellow based out of the UK and he invited you to come on for an hour and a half masterclass. And when I heard that, I thought, my goodness, I want to catch this on Twice Five Miles Radio. So I'd just invite you to start and tell us how that all happened and how did you come to know so much about writing memoirs and tell us how we can go about doing this. Well, I think probably the first thing to say is to draw the distinction between memoir and autobiography. An autobiography is written by somebody who is almost always already famous, and it's the story of their life, usually from beginning or close to the beginning until the present day. And it's written for readers or listeners who want to know, you know what that person's life was like and how they got to the eminent place where they now are, even if they're only 20 years old. It's, it's written as a sort of way of answering the questions, well, so what was your life like and how did you become this famous artist, musician, politician, what have you? A memoir is different. A memoir is actually more like a novel. I think it's easiest to think of a memoir a little bit more like a kind of 
nonfiction novel because a memoir does not need to be written by somebody famous. It does not cover the person's entire life up to this point. It's a story taken from that person's life. The next question after that is, what's a story? Before I go into that question, I'd like to just say that the person writing the memoir is almost always actually not famous. In fact, very often nobody's ever heard of that person before. You know, nobody's ever heard of Mary Carr before she wrote The Liars Club, or Jeanette Walls before she wrote The Glass Castle, or Frank McCourt before he wrote Angela's Ashes. You know, some memoirs off the top of my head. So we are all potential memoir authors. We all have led lives with challenges, with stories, with searches, with desires, with journeys in them. And if we're interested in writing a memoir, the task or the challenge, whatever you want to describe it, is to find what the story is that will resonate with your readers or listeners. This is why we read novels, the same thing. We care about characters in novels, and they're not even real. We care about the person writing the memoir because we become as involved in their story as we would be involved in Jane Eyre's story or David Copperfield's story or the story of whatever your favorite novel happens to be. So a story, and this translates across, you know, movies, novels, memoirs, um, you know, perhaps even certain history books. A story, and I've taken this definition from the screenwriting guru, John Truby, and what John Truby proposes is that a story begins when an equilibrium is disturbed or destroyed, and the story ends when a new equilibrium is established. And I didn't know that when I started writing my memoir, which is called Love Child, a memoir of family lost and found. I read John Truby's book after that, but I have found it a very useful idea. So if I just take a film like High Noon, okay, here's a town, Gary Cooper's the sheriff, uh-oh, he gets word that this bad guy has been let out of jail and he's coming to shoot up the town. Equilibrium disturbed. End of movie, bad guy defeated, town carries on. And meanwhile, Grace Kelly, of course, is now in Gary Cooper's arms. So new equilibrium has been established. So that's a very clean, clear one, um, which you will find in those kind of movies where basically the movie is about escaping the bad guy or defeating the bad guy. If I take my memoir, Love Child, it begins when my mother is killed in a car crash when I'm four years old. Now, she was basically a single mother in London in the 1960s. This was not particularly common in her social set. She was still married to her husband, John Houston, the film director, but she had left him. He was living in Ireland, and she had moved to London. And so when she died, and I was four years old, I lost my family. I had an older brother and sister who were quite a lot older and had already left home. And I had an Irish nanny. Everybody called her nurse. So I lost my home. I lost my family. It was me and nurse. And I actually went to Ireland to live at dad's house. He was actually not there very much because he was away making movies. And I ended up 
in LA eventually after a couple of other places with uh, living with dad and his new wife, by now his fifth wife, my stepmother, Cece, who kicked him out <laughs> or he left, whatever, and I carried on living with her. And then she sat me down one day when I was now about 11 or 12 and said to me, Allegra, I need to tell you something. And you're like, uh-oh, you know, that's never a good start. And then she said, John isn't really your father. And this to Cece was excellent news because it had been a very ugly divorce and I had helped her type the divorce papers. John isn't really your father. Your real father is an English lord and he's coming to visit tomorrow. Great. I'm so not in the market for another father. The last thing I want to do is meet him tomorrow. What am I supposed to do? I have no idea how to behave when I meet my real quote unquote father. Having been introduced to dad when I was four, led into a hotel room after mom died and told this is your father. So not only had I lost my family when I lost my mother, but then I kind of was afraid I was losing my dad as well because this new interloping father was interloping. <laughs> so my memoir became the story of me putting together a family out of these rather unpromising fragments. So it ends with the christening of my son and I am now at the center of both sides of my family, the Houston side and the Cooper side. In other words, my brothers and sisters on the Houston side, dad was dead by that time, and my father, the English Lord, and my brother and sister on that side. And they were all there on the banks of the Rio Grande for my son's christening. Now, I'm telling that as a story. I didn't know that was the story when I sat down to write the memoir. I had to discover that. I did know that that was the end. If I didn't know it, it would have a happy ending. I don't think I would have written it at all. So I did know that that's what I was driving to. But weirdly enough, in retrospect, I didn't understand that the story started when my mother was killed. And it took me over a year to actually understand that that was the beginning of the story. You say you discover the story, you let the story discover you. A lot of people listening to this will be thinking, I don't have anything to say and I don't have anything to write. I would like for you to unpack the difference between discovering something and writing something. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, you know this well, because this is the imaginative storm technique. And if you listeners feel the urge to join us on a Saturday morning, you will come to know how easy this is actually, and how much fun and how interesting it is to explore the possibilities of your story. Okay, I knew I was going to write a memoir, and I did know where it ended. Obviously, to me, it just felt like the end. That's the climax, you know, that's really where the story comes to its new equilibrium, and then there's a coda after that. But yes, as I say, I, I didn't know that. So I was trying to start at the beginning, but I didn't know where the beginning was. So I tried a number of different beginnings. I tried the kind of obvious beginning, which is chronological. So I tried to start with my earliest memories and that wasn't very interesting because frankly, there was no story. And I knew that I wanted to write about my mother's life before I was born. So I tried starting even earlier chronologically with what I knew of my mother's life. But there wasn't any kind of story in that either. It was just all kind of disconnected and just kind of 
sat there. It was, didn't, there was no momentum in it driving to anything because there was nothing in her early life that was driving towards me being born. So that didn't work. So I thought, well, I guess I'll just have to write it out of order since I don't know where it starts. So I decided to start writing at a place that couldn't possibly be the beginning because I was about like nine years old and I was living with my mother's parents in Long Island. And I started there and tried to write it. And I wrote one or two chapters, I can't remember, and gave it to my agent with an outline of the whole thing. And she sent it out to every publisher in London who turned it down and every publisher in New York who turned it down except one. <laughs> thank, thank you. So that gave me an advance to carry on. But then when I went back later and read those two chapters, like, oh my God, if I'd been one of those publishers, I'd have turned it down too because the tone was so horrid. It was kind of knowing and self-conscious and stiff and rather pretentious and kind of overly worked and, and I hated it. So, okay, that didn't work either. But anyway, thank God, at least I got the advance. So I'm, I'm doing this thing, I am going forward. And I just thought, okay, I'm not gonna write the book. I'm just gonna generate material. I'll write the book later. But maybe if I don't think I'm trying to write something good, if I'm just getting the stuff down on paper, then I can edit it later. Professionally, I'm an editor, so editing is my comfort zone. So I thought, I'll just generate material. And Nave, you and I had been teaching these workshops for six or seven years at that point, And I did understand the value of writing to a 10-minute writing prompt. So I thought, okay, I'll just give myself a whole pile of 10-minute writing prompts because that way I'm not trying to write something good. You can't write something good in 10 minutes. It's completely ridiculous. All you can do is write something that might be interesting. And it's not interesting to write what you know. It's an awful lot more interesting to write what you don't know, to explore a cranny, a nook of experience that you hadn't looked into before, or to look at something from a different perspective. And so I started doing that. And I liked this material a lot better than those two chapters that I had actually sat down and sort of, you know, written, starting at the beginning of the chapter and ending at the end. So I at least I felt, okay, great, this is good. I've got some energy going here. This is going well. And I did a number of those. And I went to the coffee shop where I worked every day. I would go for about like a half hour, 45 minute walk to sort of try and get things flowing and call them up and say, I'll be there in half an hour. And they would save my favorite spot for me, which was this kind of like, you know, little sort of small little sofa, you know, tucked away in a corner where kind of nobody really noticed you very much. So I arrive at the coffee shop, I get my latte, I get my brownie or whatever it was. And I sit down and okay, t I'm going to write you know, I have not very many memories from before my mother died, but some. And as you can imagine, they were extremely important to me because I only had scraps of my mother and these were the scraps. So I sat down to write them. And of course, I have revisited these memories over the years and I felt that I knew them pretty well. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of change in them when I brought them back to mind. There is one of, I'm in the drawing room of my mother's house in London, it's on the raised ground floor. And a woman, I don't know who, comes in and says, Allegra, your mother's new car is here, come and see it. 
Now this is obviously the car that she died in, which may be why that memory stayed with me. So she goes out again. I go to the window and I look down at the street and there is my mother's car. That's the memory. And the car is red in my memory. So sitting there in the coffee shop and I close my eyes and I'm going to try and, you know, add any more details that I can possibly come up with to that memory. I imaginatively put myself back in that room, the drawing room with the polished wood floor and there are radiators in front of the windows and it must be summer because I climb up on the radiator so the radiator is not hot and I look out the window and I look down at the car and it's three stories down. It's not half a story down, which it would have been if I had been in the drawing room. I'm looking down from my bedroom and the car is to the left. No, wait a minute, the car is to the right. And there's my mother, no, no, wait a minute, no, there, she's not there. And I open my eyes and it's like, I feel almost nauseous. This memory that's so important to me has just totally decomposed. It's atomized. I can't trust it. It's gone. And if I can't trust that memory, what memory can I trust? So that was a very, very bad moment. And if I hadn't had that advance from the one publisher who wanted the book, I would have given up. Not only did I feel, how can I possibly write a memoir if I can't remember anything, but I also was in very dangerous waters here where things that were very precious to me were dissolving away. But I did have the advance and I couldn't afford to pay it back. Fortunately, I also had my latte and my brownie and I hadn't eaten the brownie yet and my latte was still warm. And I thought, no, I've, I've got to do this. I've just, I, I can't. I, if, if I get up out of this chair now, I'm never going to get back down into it. So I've just got to keep myself in the chair. All I have to do is keep myself in the chair. So if I can't write what I remember, which I obviously can't, I'm just going to bloody write what I don't remember. So I set a timer for 10 minutes and I wrote, I don't remember. <laughs> and I kept going from there. And then the timer pinged. And I never, ever thought that I was going to use that material ever again. That was just to keep me in the chair that day. And interestingly enough, when much later I had generated 300 pages of handwritten material, I just typed it all up without any judgment. And then I started kind of slotting things into some kind of order and thinking, no, that doesn't belong. I don't feel any narrative movement in that. that I can toss that. But somehow I did feel that that I don't remember little piece belonged. And it actually ended up in the book almost less changed, less edited, less rewritten than almost anything else. And what I realized is that nobody cares about whether I was in the drawing room or in my bedroom. Nobody cares whether the car was to the left or the right. Nobody cares whether it was red or my godmother later said, oh no, your mother would never have had a red car. It was probably, I think it was dark blue or dark gray. Like, I know it was red. I, why? I, I don't know. An awful lot of people, everybody really, has something in their lives that's very important to them that they don't remember. And that was a far stronger connection with readers, as I then discovered, than having the memory perfect. And being able to say, I don't remember, or being able to say, this memory is slippery. It's like a fish, I can't get a hold of it. That people responded to, you know, that was what made people's mirror neurons fire. 
if your mother didn't die when you were four, or perhaps you've never lost somebody close to you or you've never lost your family, the beginning of my story isn't going to make your mirror neurons fire necessarily. But that not being able to remember a vitally important memory to you, that, much to my surprise, ended up being the element that really drew people into my story. Allegra, would you mind reading a few passages from your book to give people an example of the I don't remember approach you took? Well, I'll just read the one paragraph, which was taken, you know, almost without change from that 10 minutes that, uh, of sitting there in that coffee shop. So here it is. The harder I flex my memory, the more the stories dissolve. It makes me sick to my stomach. I feel as if I'm somehow playing myself for a fool. How many of the few delicate threads that bind me to my mother are fictions? In the blue pajamas and a raincoat memory, I'm wearing a red tartan kilt with a big safety pin. But a demon in my head whispers that I just added this in the remembering. I'm trawling my brain and I can't tell from which part of it the fragments come. Maybe I did just make that kilt up. Or, more likely, I borrowed it from some other time and place. Maybe these borrowings of memory were done a long time ago. It's interesting for me when I listen to this because you are writing about a memory you had, an experience you had in the past, and yet you're reporting in the moment, in the emotional moment, how you feel. So we're getting the memory along with what's happening right now. And I find that to be really an interesting dance between those two two realities. And when you said you wrote this longhand on pieces of paper using 10-minute prompts, a lot of people write in different ways. Some people think they have to sit down and, and be the typewriting journalist hacking away on the keyboard. And there are lots of myths about how one goes about writing. But you just sat down and generated a bunch of messy material and turned it into what we just heard. Well, I didn't know that that was the best way to do it, or the best way for me then. I thought that when you write something, you write it on your computer, because that's what we all do now. I've written hundreds of books worth of flap copy for the jackets of hardback books when I was a publisher. I had at that point written a number of magazine articles, all of which I had sat down at my computer and knocked out with varying degrees of difficulty. And when I wrote those two chapters, which I mentioned earlier, uh, well, the time when I was living with my grandparents in Long Island, I sat down at the computer to write those. And as I mentioned earlier, I then later hated them although I thought they were awfully good at the time. <laughs> so I realized that I had been doing these workshops with you, Nave. You had taught me this technique, and I wasn't using it. So I was clearly a hypocrite. <laughs> and perhaps I should try using it, actually. You know, why have we been asking people to pay us to do workshops in which we teach them this technique, which always produces this fantastic writing in workshops, and I wasn't using it because for whatever reason, I thought that if I am a quote unquote serious writer and I'm writing a serious book with a serious publisher advance, 
I should be sitting at my computer. And so, okay, I got over that one. That's one of those sort of myths of being a writer that's really not helpful. And so I just got some cheap notebooks from Walmart, but with sort of cheery colors on the cover. The, the reason I feel qualified to help people learn how to write a memoir is because I made every mistake in the book, every damn one, including having a really nice notebook because this was a really important thing to me that I was going to be writing. And when you have a really nice notebook, you feel that you have to write really well in it or you'll mess up the notebook. What's important here, the notebook or me coming up with some interesting material? So I got rid of the, the, the nice notebook, got the sort of cheap spiral bound notebooks and found a pen I liked. I think it's important to have a pen that you like. And if that's a really fancy, beautiful fountain pen, great. But if the fancy, beautiful fountain pen makes you feel you have to write well with it, move on to Pilot or Pentel or whatever other kind of pen you would write other things with, your shopping list with. But a pen that flows nicely across the page. So I think that when you are writing by hand, curled up in a little one-person sofa in the corner of a coffee shop, you're kind of relieved of having to write well you're really relieved of having to write. I mean, that's why I call it generating material. This is all very deliberate. <laughs> it's all ways to fool myself that I'm not writing the book because if I think I'm writing the book, I want it to be good, so I want to write well. But writing well is the kiss of death for me at the beginning. Later, I can edit it into good writing. I can rewrite well, but I can't generate material, fresh, raw, authentic material if I'm trying to write well. Because when you try to write well, you try and write what you know, it naturally, because you've read other things that you think are written well, so you try and sound like that, perhaps. Or you know the story you're going to tell, so you just sit down and tell it. And then later you wonder, why is this so flat and dull and, and turgid on the page? But if you write what you don't know, what you don't remember, you know, what you hadn't thought about before, and you don't know if it even belongs in the story or not, then your imagination is free to explore it. Your memory is free to say, well, oh, I don't know, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it was something else. And because you don't know if you're going to use it or not, you can just write really honestly, really authentically, and then later you can decide. So when I conceived of the book, I didn't think that there was going to be me in the present day remembering those memories. I had no intention of that being part of how the book was going to be written, but I had that piece and it just fit. And I liked the way it read to put that in there. So I did. It would have been fake for me to somehow pretend like I could tell the story of myself up to the age of four seamlessly perfectly remembered as if it had been recorded at the time. And then nobody would have believed me. Of course they wouldn't. And the book would have felt inauthentic from page one. But because I finally, finally had the sense to actually not try and write the book that I thought I was supposed to write and just see what came out instead, I ended up with material that was connected, that was authentic, and that was original. And then it also gave me this other thread that runs throughout the book.
of memory and not remembering and what you remember and what you don't remember. So that gets pulled up here and there throughout the book. And at the very end, when I say there was a coda, the very end is my son at that point was, I think, three or four or five when I finished writing the book. I just wrote a little thing saying, I wonder what he will remember. And so that picked up the first chapter at the end. I didn't know I was going to write that. But as I read through the book, I just sort of felt like that belonged. So I went back to my notebook. I didn't keep going with the computer. Went back to my notebook, went back to the 10-minute timer, went back to the coffee shop and set the timer for 10 minutes. I wonder what my son will remember. A lot of people never think about writing their story or their memoir. They just move on with their lives, which is perfectly fine. Sure. There are a lot of people, however, and many of whom are listening to this conversation you and I are having, they've thought of it. They're mm -hmm. thinking, you know, I'd like to, I think I should write my memoir. I should tell my story. I'm attracted to what I've experienced and I think other people would be too. And then they come to this halt. Yeah. Well, I don't have enough experience. I can't do this. I wish I knew how to do it. Oh, fine. Well and good. Allegra knows how to do this. She's an editor. She's done this and she's done that. She has all this experience. I, on the other hand, I don't have anything to offer. That's really not true. And I would love for you to speak to that. No, I, it's certainly not true. And yes, I had a lot of experience as an editor. I didn't have any experience writing a book. And in fact, as an editor, all the manuscripts that I worked on came to me in a reasonably finished state. And even if I heavily edited them, the story was there, the characters were there. Heavily edited, maybe I moved some things around and there was a lot of line editing, but the skeleton was there. And so I didn't understand that you may have to discover the skeleton. You can't start just building it, or I couldn't start just building it from the beginning. Like I said earlier, I didn't know where it began. It seems so obvious in retrospect. The book that actually helped me understand that, and this is advice that I would give to people if you are thinking of writing a memoir, read a lot of memoirs. See how other people have done it. And people do it in very different ways. Some are entirely chronological, like The Glass Castle or The Liars Club, I think, is, is entirely chronological. And her kind of current self doesn't come into it. She's just telling the story memory by memory as it happened. And of course, it gets a little more kind of continuous as she gets older and she, her memories become more continuous. But then other books are told completely out of chronological order but in the order of the story. So there I was, over a year into generating material, and I'm thinking, I need to get a draft now. I've got 300 pages of raw material. I feel like I've generated kind of pretty much everything I think might belong in the book. It's time to turn it into a shape. And I typed up all these separate pieces. They were like one or two pages and laid them out all over my bed and started trying to put them into a shape, but I still didn't know where it started. And so I was now despairing one more time for like the third or fourth time in the course of this experience. And my friend Rhonda suggested that I read a book by Nick Flynn called Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. 
Now, this is a really terrific memoir, and I highly recommend it. Nick Flynn had a father who was always going to write the great American novel, but he never did. And he was a kind of wastrel and, you know, was always full of big plans and big projects and big ideas, and none of which ever came off. And um, eventually, I think that, I don't know if the mother left the father or the father left, can't remember, um, but he hadn't seen him for decades. He was working in a homeless shelter, and who walks in the door but his father? Beginning of a story, right? Obviously not the chronological beginning of this story because it's all about his relationship with his father and how he comes to terms with having had that grandiose, abandoning father. That's the moment where the story begins. So when I read that book, I realized immediately that, yes, my story begins when my mother died. That's what sends me off onto a journey where I need something, where I want something. Like Nick Flynn, he needs to come to peace with his father, his relationship with his father. And that's what the story of his book is. And he tells it in little vignette, two, three pages long, some of them really short. And he just puts a year at the top of each one. They're entirely out of chronology, but they're tracing the relationship. They're tracing the arc of his emotional feelings about his father. So he needs something. He wants something from that moment on. Before that, he thought, well, you know, whatever, my father's gone, I don't have to deal with it. Now he has to deal with it. He's just walked in the door of the homeless shelter. Another screenwriting guru, Robert McKee, would call it the inciting incident. It starts the story. From here on, nothing can ever be the same. The equilibrium is destroyed. Nick Flynn had been living in an equilibrium in which he didn't really have to think about his father. That equilibrium is now destroyed. I had been living in an equilibrium with my mother in this house, and that equilibrium is destroyed when she's killed. My life now gets thrown up completely in the air. I just got that instinctively, that that's where the story starts. But you don't have to have that to start writing. Read a lot of memoirs and see how other people do it and start, trying, start thinking about what might your story be. I knew my story was going to be about family because I did know that it was going to end with this fantastic and very silly christening that we had for my son. So if you have a story, if you think, okay, my life is interesting, I've done these interesting things, I've lived with the llamas of Tibet, or I've been to the South Pole, or I've survived a divorce, or I've managed to get through my son's suicidal teenage years, and gosh, what a horrible example, but I'm just thinking of things that it might be. So either how I've come to terms with the fact that he committed suicide or how we got through it and we're now on great terms. Either way, the story can end in all kinds of places and that's why it's interesting when a story starts because you don't know where it's going to end. So if you can look at your life and say, this is what I think would be interesting to readers or listeners. This is where I think people would feel a human connection with me. And there's a place where that kind of ends. There's a place where that comes to a new equilibrium. For example, if you're still on your way to the South Pole, now is not the time to write the memoir 
of going to the South Pole. You could certainly start journaling and generating material. You're going to use that later, but you don't actually know how it's going to end. So you're not going to finish the memoir until you either reach the South Pole or don't, right? So I would say look for what it is in your life that makes you think, maybe I should write a memoir. Maybe I should give it a shot. And if that's still an unresolved story, you really are just generating material. And you don't know how it's going to end because none of us can see the future. And that's great. You'll end it when that new equilibrium, whatever it might be, is established. But if you can look back, like I could look back, my son's christening was a year and a half in the past when I started writing my book. I just kind of knew that's where it ended because all of my family were there together and some of them had never met before. So once you have that, if you know what you're driving to, I always think I don't need the beginning or the end of a story. If I'm writing a novel or a screenplay or whatever it is, I don't need the beginning and the end. I need the beginning or the end. And personally, I prefer having the end. <laughs> a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, well, I don't think I'm ever going to the South Pole or the North Pole. A lot of people live in the same place and their families have been there for generations. I know we're sitting in a patio here in Taos, New Mexico, and we know a lot of folks who've been here and they go on a journey. Maybe they'll go for a vacation, but mostly everything they do is contained within a small space. So when people are thinking about writing a memoir from the small space point of view, it's really no different than going to the South Pole, is it? No, not at all. No different at all. As I was saying, maybe your story is how I survived that horrible divorce. Or maybe it wasn't a horrible divorce. Maybe your story is how my husband and I got divorced and stayed the best of friends. Or whatever family dynamic, all lives have events in them. So the difference between a sequence of events and a story is actually also an interesting point of discussion. I think there is just a sort of misunderstanding that a sequence of events is the same thing as a story, but it's not. A sequence of events is this thing happened, that thing happened, the next thing happened, and then this other thing happened. They may be kind of connected, but there's nothing driving from one to the other. There's nothing that makes it start, and there's nothing that feels like a resolution, however tenuous that resolution might be. A story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A story has an inciting incident, a start, a place where an equilibrium is disturbed or destroyed. And it has an end where a new equilibrium is established, where something is resolved, where something is tidied up, perhaps where a new journey begins. And, you know, that can happen on the, the smallest scale that can be completely internal. Or it can be something as dramatic as a trip to the South Pole. Neither is better or worse than the other. People read stories of journeys to the South Pole because they're interested in adventure. And people read stories of divorce or raising an autistic child. That's one memoir that I edited. Or Fairyland. There's another memoir that I copy edited that I absolutely love by Alicia Abbott. And it's her story of growing up as a little girl with a single father in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, Castro in the 70s, and her father has at this point announced that he's gay, so he's living the full-on 
gay San Francisco bathhouse life. And if you remember the 70s, you know what happened then. AIDS came. So it's fascinating because it's a memoir of this little girl growing up in this really intense gay scene. It's an angle on that scene that you kind of don't ever even think could have possibly existed. And it's really a lovely book. So there are all kinds of stories that maybe you say, well, I didn't have anything as dramatic as that. But were there any family secrets? Were there things that were unexpressed? How did you feel? Did you feel that you fit into this family? Did you want to rebel? You could perhaps write a story of wanting to rebel, but why didn't you? And you're still there. Or you did. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of Educated by Tara Westover, I think she's called, where she grew up in this very strict Mormon family and she was homeschooled and, and she rebelled by going to college and ending up at Cambridge. And it was a big success, that book. It was a bestseller. It's an example, again, of a much closer story, although, again, you know, quite out of the norm. But if you're going to write a memoir, it doesn't necessarily require that you intend this memoir to be published, that you intend to have people who don't know you read it. Maybe you're thinking of writing a memoir for the benefit of your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. And that's a wonderful thing to do. That is just as valid as writing a book that you hope might be published. I mean, I know people who have discovered the memoir that their grandmother or their great-grandmother or great-grandfather wrote. Usually it's the women that do it. And have been just so thrilled to read it and learn about their ancestors, where they came from. And often one of the things they say is, now that I know more about my grandmother, I understand my mother better. And, or my father, you know, whoever was the child of that grandmother. And those things that I used to blame her or him for, those things I didn't understand, those ways that that parent behaved, that I took personally, that I thought were about me, they weren't about me at all. That was their upbringing. So it's not even just a sort of point of curiosity to say, oh, yes, you know, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother used button hooks to put on her boots. Those details are fascinating and lovely, but it's a lot more than that. I'm just thinking of one that somebody told me that their grandparents in the 1920s had driven across country in a Model T Ford, camping along the way when the grandmother was heavily pregnant with the mother of my friend, that gave her and me this huge insight into that family who then became a very quote-unquote normal suburban family in Lawrence, Kansas, that you would have never thought really did anything unusual. But because the grandmother had written the account of that, that gave my friend this whole new perspective on her own life, her own family. So it was really an incredible gift that her grandmother had given her from beyond the grave. So that might be the reason why you write a memoir. 
And in that case, maybe it might be more like an autobiography. Maybe you do want to just put in everything and not really worry about whether it has a story as such. And that can be incredibly satisfying for you. And as I say, this very precious gift that you can give to your descendants, either now or later. <laughs> well, Allegra, we've almost reached the top of the hour. We have just a few more minutes to go. I would invite you to tell us a bit about what's going on now with the imaginative storm, because a lot of what you are doing and a lot of what I'm doing has emerged from this work that you and I have done over the past 20 years. And we have done a lot of it. And in the last year, you and I have done more than ever. And the things that surprised me, and I know it surprised you too, because you told me how much we learned in this deep work, it takes more than a month to generate material. It's really in some ways a, a lifetime commitment once you start. Well, of course, there's that theory, the 10,000 hours, you don't really become an expert or a master at anything until you've put in that kind of time, which is 10 years minimum. In our case, 20, we're slow. What happened was it started when our friend Wendy came over for tea about a year ago. She was reading Love Child. She said, oh my God, how did you make it so authentic? Um, how, I've just felt like, how did you get into the voice of the child so well? And I'm like, oh, well, I couldn't possibly have done it without Nave's training. And that was just the off the cuff answer. And you were sitting there and our eyes met across the table. Oh, that's what it was. It was training. So at that point, we decided that day, and we started work the next day, we decided we were going to develop a course called Imaginative Storm Writer Training. And it would be based on these 10-minute writing prompts, the principle of writing what you don't know, the principle of writing material that you don't know if you're going to use or not. I call it throwaway writing. You don't like that phrase as much as I do. Um, <laughs> but it helps me because I know I can throw it away if I don't like it. I only wrote it in 10 minutes, but you write lots and lots of those. So we have been working on this course, which is also going to be a book, and we're you know, getting kind of towards having that done now. And in aid of that, we began the Saturday morning writing prompt of the week on Zoom, open to all, free, open to everyone who wants to come and just explore their writing and appreciate other people's explorations. And we have learned so much in the seven or eight months from the people who have come to the Saturday mornings. And some of them, you know, introduced themselves by saying, I'm not a writer. And about four or five weeks later, they're not saying that anymore because they're so taken and surprised by what's come out of their pen. And then other people, you remember Obed, we have this lovely guy from Rwanda who phones in from Rwanda on Zoom. And he said, I've written more in 10 minutes than I could have written in an hour. Because in an hour, of course, he was trying to write well. And in 10 minutes, he just threw caution to the winds. So that learning that we have had, which again, surprised us, we didn't expect that we had more to learn, but it turned out we had a huge amount more to learn. And that has informed the book and the course that we are hopefully soon to release on an unsuspecting public. 
How about that? Well, tell the people how they can find out more about it, Allegra. As they can at imaginativestorm.com. Just as you said earlier, you will find the Zoom link. It's not morning in Asheville, of course, it's noon. Um, but anyway, the Saturday prompts you will find there, and you will find information on the writer training, and you will find also two books that Nave and I wrote, How to Edit and Be Edited, and How to Read for an Audience. Well, Allegra Houston, thank you for spending this hour with us. We could go on for three or four more hours, as you and I have done <laughs> over the past year, and it's such a pleasure to be able to visit with you like this and share some of your thinking with the people who are listening. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And there you go, my friends. I hope this conversation with Allegra has given you a better insight into how you might tell your story, how you might approach the writing if it's something you're moved to do. I've always enjoyed working with Allegra. I'm sure you can understand why after listening to her wonderful explanation of how one goes about getting material on the page. And I'd like to spend some time now giving you more of a backstory on, on how the imaginative storm came to be. As you might remember in the conversation with Allegra, she said she couldn't have done it without Nave's imaginative storm writer training. She also said that when we said that, or she said that, she looked at me and I looked at her and we thought, training. Well, the imaginative storm came out of years and years of work. I was happy and honored, really, to be part of when I was traveling around the country teaching poetry performance to school students. And the idea back in those days was to perform a poem for the school students and then go into the classroom, teach them how to perform the work as a way of studying the poetry. If you've ever memorized a poem or if you've ever read one out loud over and over again or any kind of text, you already know that the reading, the repetition is what allows you to get deeper and deeper into the meaning of the text. It's fairly simple. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. And you say it over again. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. So I've said it three different ways. I've memorized that poem, oh, I don't know, for years now I've had it memorized. And so I, I can say it in different ways. And yet each time I say it, I'm given a little bit of a different understanding of, of what two roads diverging in a yellow wood might mean. And so when I was working with the students, they would read the poems over and over until they became more and more familiar with them and then they would read them out loud. Sometimes they would memorize the shorter ones if we had time to work in that direction. Often the time was short, so I would just give them a sample of what it felt like to speak the material out loud and the teachers appreciated that. As you might imagine, after a while, teachers wanted me to add a writing component to the 
reading out loud. They were very happy for the students to study the poems in the school textbook, but they also, as teachers, were required to get the students to write something. So they said, can you teach them how to write? And I said, well, sure I can. I didn't really know what to do, but I, I said yes because I'd learned a long time ago to follow the yes path is a good idea, especially when you're experimenting with imaginative creative work. So I accepted the challenge, went into the classroom, and I actually didn't know what to do. I had seen magnetic words on refrigerator doors, and I'd often wondered why it was so easy to rearrange those words to make some kind of imaginative sense, even if it didn't make linear sense. So I wondered, standing there in the classroom, if the students were familiar with the magnetic refrigerator poetry. And so I said, does anybody know magnetic refrigerator poetry? And they, some of them did raise their hands. I said, well, let's play around with that idea. So I asked the students to give me a provocative image, which they did. And we wrote the provocative image on the, on the board, like a zebra flying in a trapeze over the circus top, eating a pineapple. And then I asked the students to give me spontaneous list of words. And I wrote those words on the board and I asked them to write those words on their list. And then I asked them to also generate a spontaneous list of words on their own, which they did. So by the time this short little 10 minute exercise was over, the students had a list of words they had made. We had a list of community words on the board. And then I said, somebody read the words. And the students read the words. And they read the words in the ordinary way. Tree, branch, wall, sun, sky, shoes, desk, pencil, lunchbox, plant, fish. And then I asked them to read the words with a little more flavor. The sky and the fish worked together at the desk when the pencils danced around across the floor after the day was done, something like that. They loved it. And then I asked the students to generate a piece of writing based on the, the preparation we had already done. Of course, they dove right in. They weren't thinking about being writers. They were just thinking about, wow, I can do this. This will be fun. And then I invited them to read. And many of them stood up and read their work. Some even came to the front of the room and read their work. And they were very proud. And the teacher said, well, how did you get them to do that? And I didn't have an answer for her because I knew that I was not the one who had gotten them to do it. I was the one that set the table, if you will, for the meal. And the students had done it on their own because they loved to play. And that is how the imaginative storm started. And the idea for it came organically out of the classroom setting with with students in the middle schools and then some elementary schools. And then I went to high school and after I taught all levels with this work, except maybe the kindergarten students, they really didn't need it. I started working with adults, same thing happened. And I then later met Allegra and introduced it to her and we started using it with adults and guess what? Same thing happened. And as we said earlier, if you'd like to take a test run, 
You can always join us every Saturday morning on the Zoom call. Doors always open. People come and go. And they all have the same experience, which is similar to what the students experienced all those years ago. There's a consistency there. You can find the link at imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. You can invite your friends. Like I said, the door is always open to everyone. And now we've arrived at the top of the hour, the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for being with us as we talked about the imaginative storm. I love the topic, obviously. You can see that with my enthusiasm and also with Allegra's. And on that note, you've been tuned in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, you can always reach out to me, Nave, at JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. And thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. We really appreciate it. Couldn't do this without you. Hats off to you, Devine Dial. And finally, thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. And I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.